0: Priesthood about women in the church, in the gospel, in the scriptures, all within the context of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I welcome input. I welcome uh, emails. I'd love to hear from my listeners and my readers. And at the end of this broadca- or broadcast, it tells you how old I am, um, I will talk about where you can find more of my writings. But last week we talked about the purge of King Josiah. We went over a little bit of the biblical history of how there are two temple periods. The first one began with King Solomon. The second one um, begins with King Josiah around 597 BC too. It goes to 70 AD when the the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Um, And that the second temple period in a lot of the apocryphal writings that we find in the Damascus document in the Book of Enoch which talks about the Apocalypse of Weeks um, that they call it the Age of Wrath because the the priests and the, the people who came back after the Babylonian exile, they came back uh, were allowed to come back by King Cyrus the Persian Empire Um, He allowed them to come back and rebuild the temple, and they had changed a lot of the... They finished what they'd started with King Josiah, with the purges, and with the changes in the temple ceremonies. And they made it um, the religion, a law of the Torah, where you had to be a strict adherence and obedience, and that grace was really not an option, not allowed. that you couldn't see the face of god one of those big things that well two of the big things that they purged was um the day of atonement which is where we get a lot of um the symbolism about the messiah and also of the queen of heaven the mother in heaven they they got rid of and as i spoke about my last Um, episode you can't get rid of the son Jesus Christ without getting rid of the mother because they were so entwined today I wanted to talk about um, a little bit go into more about this purges and how where we get a lot of the um, evidence for the mother in heaven Um, we are getting more archaeological discoveries, as late as uh, or as early, I should say, as 1897. Now, as you know, Joseph Smith, um, he was killed many decades before that, and he was teaching about a mother in heaven and teaching a lot of things that uh, were not um, proved um, intellectually or um, uh, it. In a law, educational way, that um, until the, you know, the earliest was in the 1890s, and this is when the Damascus document was found, um. When uh, we lived over in Belgium, um, it's been several years now since we've returned. We lived three years in Angola and the three years in Belgium, and one of the things that I loved to do was go visit the cathedrals and the museums all over Europe. I, I mean, we went to Spain, um, went to Bruges, we went to um, France, we uh, went to England, uh, just all over, and um, one of the first things that I would always do is go into the cathedrals and I loved the religious paintings and if we know anything about our world history there was a time when the only thing artists were allowed to paint were were religious paintings and they had to be approved by the um, early catholic church because they controlled everything. They controlled the political uh, landscape they controlled the culture. They controlled the religion. They, it was it was everything was controlled by the early church. So there were no paint, the paintings of anything else other than of religious scenes. What I found was interesting, if anybody who has studied art history, like I've mentioned before, I'm not a historian, not even an art historian, but I did study if Uh, Read up a few things on on some of the paintings I was interested in and they talk a lot about uh, This in a book that I read years ago called the The alabaster jar Um, but for those some of those artists those painters Who wanted to rebel so to speak or to share messages? to their followers that they weren't completely um, in line with the, t- the teachings of the early church at that time, they would hide hidden messages within those religious paintings. Um, and I won't go into any specifics, but um, it's an interesting uh, subject to look up. So um, they were kind of just thumbing their nose um, at... A, a, a lot of the religious elite at that time, the rulers, and even if you study the Michelangelo's uh, a Sistine Chapel, there's a, a pretty hilarious one there. I won't go into it, but stay. he was, he made fun of one of the, I think it was a priest or one of the religious elite in the painting. So I'll just let you look that up and find out what that is about but so they found a way of getting messages across in um a lot of the way the old testament is written in the old sc- scriptures since there was not a printing press and it could only be shared orally these stories these lessons could only be shared orally they had to find ways of um sharing those messages in a way that the people would remember. Um, one of them is a, a chiasmic writing where you know it's um, the first and last lines are parallel they, and then the second line and the second to the last um, are parallel until you you come into the middle section the middle line sentence whatever and that was the main message. Of that lesson of that scripture and we found that the Book of Mormon has chiasmic patterns in there um, Isaiah is a big one with, with the chiasmus a lot of you know Genesis so that was a, a big way they used uh, poetry a lot um, even the name of Noah um, his name means rest and so that was uh, sharing with the people who listened to that when you're obedient to god eventually you will be able to rest you know that's just one of the way another thing that was very popular is wordplay and they would use words that um and that's the fascinating thing about hebrew i d- i haven't studied hebrew just the things that i've read and some of the words is it would have more than one meaning and these brilliant writers prophets and and the like and even scribes whether they were doing the right thing or not um that's changed they were made they knew um how to a lot of these hebrew words and names had double meanings one example is nephi when the very first he said i nephi having been born of goodly parents, which I find, you know, a lot of people find, found that fascinating, and they go, and, um, and it, it is, uh, it's, um, to his credit, he, he was giving credit to his parents, and he was praising them, but it was also a wordplay, and because the name Nephi means good, and so he was having a kind of a, a wordplay a fun wordplay on his name meaning I'm good as I'm the parents of goodly parents um, and when we realize that and as we study the scriptures the the canon we can find wordplay in there that hints at more than what is at the very surface. And talking about the mother in heaven and the queen of heaven, she's in a lot of the word play. One of those is the word Asher, A-S-H-R-E. And this word means happy. Um, um, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 and 18, um, it describes wisdom as the tree of life and those who are devoted to her as happy, which is Asher. And this is a wordplay that sounds like the name of Asherah, A-S-H-E-R-A-H. And this is just all throughout the Old Testament. And, um, it was, um, and I'm having a brain fart right now. Uh, the mother of Asher, um, uh, I, sort of Jacob's second wife or his first wife, Leah, um, when she has the child named Asherah. Um, it's very likely that you know they they knew of of Asherah the queen of heaven, and that she was so grateful that she named her son after the queen of heaven. It was a wordplay. She was so grateful because they they recognized the queen of heaven, uh, heavenly mother, as as being concerned over um, over birth, over creation, over um, fertile, being fertile, like being able to have children. And uh, whether or not she was prayed to, don't know. It seems like she was with these early matriarchs. And that, um, that Leah was so grateful that she named her one of her sons asher meaning she's so happy and thank you to asherah for this wonderful gift so when to find out more about heavenly mother we we tend to piece together a lot of things um, and i know that can be you have to kind of be looking for the picture right uh we piece together uh, fragments of tradition, of folk memory, of um, we can see what was taken out of the temple, that what King Josiah took out of the temple, mainly from the prophetic visions that uh, the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Enoch had because they would have temple visions and in those visions, there were things in the Holy of Holies that were not in there during the second temple period that must have been in there during the first temple period during Solomon's time and um, and I'll talk today about Lehi's vision and it's a temple vision as well one of the fascinating things is the book of Enoch I think there's three books and in first Enoch on one of the heavenly journeys that Enoch took, and this is the same Enoch that uh, that created the city of Zion and was taken up and, and translated. He, on one of his heavenly journeys, he saw a fragrant tree of life that would one day be planted again in the temple and its fruit given to the righteous. Um... He also saw dismembered branches from the tree flourishing in a blessed place. For Latter-day Saints, we see echoes of uh, parallels to other scriptures. So when Enoch talks about the tree of life that one day be planted again in the temple, that brings us back to King Josiah where he took out this tree. And there's evidence that there were uh sculptures and um um things in the temple that represented stylized trees and that the asher must have been the stylized tree of life the symbol of wisdom and that someday she would return and that she would return with the messiah that's what a lot of the prophecies have in especially in these apocryphal scriptures that she will return with when the messiah returns I believe, this is my supposition, that that was um, the second coming of Jesus Christ is, is, is going to be a major event. But he is also, he's returned already. He returned when he, when he appeared before Joseph Smith, both in the Grove and in the Temple. He appeared with, um, in the Book of Mormon with the Nephites at the Temple at Bountiful. So when the temple, uh, when the priesthood and the temple was restored through Joseph Smith, to me, this was the beginning of the, uh, the res- restoration of mother in heaven as well, because we were, we began, um, to restore the divine feminine. And as we as witness in the current temples, I mean, Lot has a lot of things in the temple have been made clearer, and you can't have full temple rituals or meanings without the man and the woman, without the male and the female, without the family, because the family starts with a man and a woman, with the um, divine feminine the Divine Masculine so in my opinion she is returning the um, Heavenly Mother is slowly being revealed because of the restoration and it began with the restoration it began with the restoration of the priesthood that's where Heavenly Mother began to be revealed it began with the restoration of the temple began with the appearance of Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father in the grove. There are some scholars who through various uh symbology and imagery feel like Heavenly Mother was there as well. I won't go into that but um everything is done line upon line but she is being revealed and It begins with Jesus Christ, and nothing could be revealed without Jesus Christ. And it starts there. Study about Him, study about the priesthood, and um, study about the temple. And more and more will be revealed about the Divine Feminine. It has to come through the temple. If you want to know more about her, you need to go to the temple. We need to listen and pay attention. And it has we have to be ready it is um, we have to do everything that we've been commanded to do and to follow the example of Jesus Christ because he is the veil that we walk through he is the gate and the door that we have to go through to enter into the presence of our Heavenly Parents and we're not ready until we have done everything that we are supposed to do, and we have received those ordinances, and through His grace, we enter, and then we will learn more and more. But I think that that veil is thinning even now, and um, the, the archeology span alone that's coming out is amazing. And the more and more that we're learning about uh, their beliefs, and uh, about Heavenly Mother. When we talk about King Josiah's Purge, let's t- talk a little bit more about what he took out and it will help you understand a little bit more about why it it centers back into uh, the getting rid of Heavenly Mother and that. He took out, he cut down all of the, the Asherahs, the the trees, and in the Old Testament, and I will discuss this more in my book of the Hebrew changes and the different words, the consonants and things like that to uh, give more credence to my theories here and what other scholars believe, but the Deuteronomus the editors and the scribes of the Bible would change just with the change of one word or uh, excuse me one vowel or one consonant one thing on a Hebrew word and it changes from um, It means one wholesome thing and they can change it into uh, a very unwholesome thing. So uh, for instance, it talks about in the Old Testament about um, people worshiping in the groves of trees and that there were male prostitutes. I will show you in the book how most likely that just a word was changed and just, um, a, a one little letter was changed and it wasn't, they changed it from, um, Asherah into male prostitutes or into the grove of trees. So, um, They were getting rid of very valid, very holy, wholesome things and they were trying to make it appear as if it wasn't wholesome. Um, Those changes, um, like I said, they're very confusing in the scriptures and we tend to take the very basic of the stories and we turn them into bedtime stories and we don't dig deeper into what they really mean. As we study the Old Testament, for instance, we don't have to really know much about, um, at least at this time, the Heavenly Mother. We, We take away the lessons that Heavenly Father wants us to know about the way the scripture is translated currently. And worshiping false gods and idols, of course, that is wrong. Those false gods and idols, those images that come to my mind are anything in our life that we put before Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, that we put before our living the gospel. It could be media, social media, um, language, our behavior, like whether it's gossiping and not forgiving, uh, refusing to gather with the saints because of um, anger or we don't want to live the gospel because we want to live a different lifestyle those are gods and idols that we are worshiping everybody worships you can say you're an atheist well you worship the state you worship secular things those things that are the most meaningful to you that you put first in your life that is what you worship So that is the very basic takeaway that we we get from those things, even with the mistranslation. Um, Part of what he took out besides those, um, the uh, jar of manna, Aaron's rod, the ark, um, the oil, the manna, um, there were a lot, all of these things were kept in the Holy of Holies. And to, to show you... One reason to to demonstrate one reason why, just because he burnt these wooden images, um, these these trees, they what they were, were trees that represented Heavenly Mother. He also took out the uh, Aaron's rod that had budded, you know, it was an almond, um, an almond flower. He burnt that, um, and also. Um, the staff that Moses had erected in the wilderness when the people were being bitten by snakes. And he erected this um, this pole with a snake on there, and he told the people, when you get bit, you just look up and uh, you will be healed. And of course, that's very symbolic as well. We take a lot of symbolism from that with our own personal religious practice. Um, he King Josiah burnt that as well. well was that evil? No. He wanted to get rid of anything that could even come close to idolatry. Was that good or bad? It just was. Um, I don't agree with that. Perhaps the people were um, burning incense to them, maybe they were... uh, It was becoming too... They were focusing too much on the, the... the figure and the image more than their beliefs and their practices but so not everything he did was on um, uh, just because King Josiah purged it doesn't mean that it was um, a bad thing that he was supposed to get rid of now he did get rid of some things that were not good at that time and one of them was child sacrifice. Um, and I I don't know very much about that, about that time period, but those that were um, sacrificing children to pagan gods, uh, that was obviously not the correct Israelite religion. Those are some of the things that were removed from the Holy of Holies. And if you study the prophecies of of those prophets in the old testament and some of the apocryphal writings you will see that whenever they have a temple vision it's usually their call of commission that's their calling as a prophet they've been commissioned as you know okay now you are called to be my prophet a lot of those are um, in the temple Uh, temple visions were not always the commission call but they would have various visions in the temple and they would see things that represented the Holy of Holies and those things that should have, that were, that would have been in there at the time of King Solomon that were not in there later on. And we know what was not in there a a lot because of historical records. Um, When we think about why the priests took out these things out of the Holy of Holies. Why is that significance? Well, at that time, only the High Priests were allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. Um, they were the only ones, the High Priests were the only ones that had access. So why take these things out? Well, it meant that Josiah's changes concerned the High Priests and they were changes that we're at the very heart of the temple and at the temple worship so when you change things in the Holy of Holies that is that's the heart that is that's the center and if we think about I know each temple has a Holy of Holies but if we're thinking just in terms of our temple worship we could define um, the Sealing Room as our Holy of Holies, because that is where we are sealed as a husband and wife, and we become one. Um, we become the Divine Feminine and the Divine Masculine are finally reunited. Uh, the, that which was separated at the time of Adam and Eve, um, with the time of Creation, where light and darkness were separated, the water and the land, um, Eve was separated from Adam, symbolically, with the rib, with the side. And so everything that we do from here on out, you know, they left the temple, they left the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, as men and women, as um, as children of, he- of heavenly parents, as followers of Christ, we are trying to become reunited once again. That's the whole purpose of going to the temple. That's what it symbolizes us, for us. We marry and we seal. Uh, we are sealed together in, uh, in the sealing room as husband and wife or as families. Um, we've been separated so that when, when we die, we won't be separated at death. We will continue to be unified. We live the gospel and we accept Christ because so that we can have that atonement in our lives so because atonement is at one meant we can be at one with christ and by that be at one with heavenly father and heavenly mother since adam and eve left the garden we're constantly uh, striving to become one with our spouse which is not an easy task Uh, two different people two different sexes from two different cultures, two different um, family uh, histories, just so many differences and the Lord expects us to become unified somehow, to become two halves of one whole to become interdependent. So this whole thing is that we are trying to become reunited, eventually reunited with Heavenly Parents, reunited with Christ, reunited with our families, and what King Josiah changed, he changed the heart of all of that. He made it very difficult to be reunited. Let's turn to, um, let's talk about Lehi now in his vision. Um, part, uh, we, the cool thing about that is that it's not long after He has left, you know, it's still very strong in his memory about Jerusalem, about what was happening to the changes in the temple at the very, you know, in the, uh, in the Holy of Holies, what was being erased, scrubbed, burned, and the persecution. And he has this vision. We know from dreams and visions, uh, imagery, metaphors, that they can mean more than one thing we get several meanings out of one image, and that's by design. When uh, Lehi sees this, he's in this wilderness, and he's guided to the path that takes him to the tree of life, and he partakes of the fruit, and he sees um, the this big building without foundation, and they were wearing fine linen, and pointing, and jeering, and locking. Um, and then Nephi has, he wants to know the meaning and he has, um, he shares additional details that were probably in Lehi's description as well, but we don't have that book anymore. That's part of the 116 lost pages. Um, and he, he sees the mist of the darkness, um, the, the people, um, part of what this imagery represents and anybody who studies dreams knows that when we have a dream that we're meant to decipher we dream of of images and of things that we are familiar with and it's usually ties into part of our history we dream about a house we grew up in we dream about people that we haven't seen in ages or may have have passed on we, we might dream of something that happened the day before But they're all jumbled up and we're in, in the dream in the moment they make sense but when you wake up you have to think about it and Realize that they are representing something else. They're an image. They're your subconscious is trying to teach you something that you need to know um, to unpack This is the same for Lehi Part of this, I believe, is he is seeing what was happening in Jerusalem. Now it doesn't take away from what we get from the Tree of Life vision, and Lehi's vision. That's all exactly correct, but he is seeing what has been happening to the temple, the changes, um, the, the building with the fine linen. Fine linen is representative of uh can represent the temple linens right and that those people are the prideful and the um the politically and religious elite that were making changes which is they were taking out the foundation right it was a building without foundation they were taking out the foundation of the temple which was the holy of holies the messiah jesus christ day of atonement heavenly mother and the path And remember what I said last week part of what they were changing was um, that they weren't that you can't enter you weren't allowed to enter into the presence of God Uh, the presence of God was the Holy of Holies um, or just yeah that's another discussion of what does it mean to see the face of God versus entering into the presence of God I mean that's a whole other topic but they were saying that these mysteries were not for people they were for God only and you only needed the Torah Um, or that you needed to just you know, follow the Torah. And I'm being very simplistic with this. Please don't. <laughs> it's like, oh, she's all wrong about the, you know, the history of the, the Jews and that. I'm, I'm just referring to the images. Um, and so when people start on that path, the mist that suddenly comes across that is can be represented of the incense that was. Lit um, and uh, in the temple, and that the the changes were they what they were trying to do. The people, the the temple workers, the temple priests, who were supposed to help guide people to the presence of God, were bastardizing things, and it was as if they were making the incense so smoky um, that it was obstructing the path that people originally had to enter into the presence of God. And I hope that makes sense. So that mist was not only the distractions of the world, but it is also an image of what the priests were doing at the time of King Josiah that, that Lehi had just left with his family, that they were the incense that were supposed to be lit. The, um, representing prayers ascending to god were being polluted and it was actually um they were changing it so it was obstructing the view and it's obstructing the way for people to go into the presence of god and to partake of that fruit now this is i've talked about this before this is the cool thing is that nephi when he sees that tree um, he wants to know what the meaning is which I find is very interesting if it was just the tree of life as we think about from the Garden of Eden um, he might not have asked that question but and this is what's frustrating to me about what we do in Sunday school when we go through this scripture is we completely gloss over the very first part we just Barely touch on it, and it was the very first thing. It's a woman, the very first thing that the guide shows. He shows him a, um, a vision, he doesn't tell him, he shows him. Yes, what does the tree mean? He shows him Mary. Now, he doesn't say that it's Mary, but he says, This is you know, shows a woman. She's fair, she's meaning, she's fair, she's beautiful, she's virtuous. And she doesn't have a baby at that time, but it shows her. I find that very interesting. Then the second thing he shows, Nephi, is now, this woman is now holding a child, the son of God. And he says that this woman is the mother of the Son of God after the matter of flesh, meaning there is a heavenly mother of the Son of God, right, that is the spiritual and the heavenly mother. So it's very telling, very interesting that this guide is so careful and specific about what he refers to Mary as. So remember, those first two Symbols, um, the first two Descriptions um, Meanings that are given to us and given to Nephi are all about the woman and all about that She's a mother of the son of God. So the fruit in this particular vision um, The tree represents the mother and the the fruit represents Jesus Christ and that's how they're so entwined right And um, there's a lot of paintings after that in the early church history, in the Catholic church history that where um, the mother, where Mary is the throne and um, Christ is sitting on her lap, where she's the tree and he is in the tree. He's hanging in the tree. And they're getting, they're remembering the echoes of these symbols that the people, the refugees, took with them at the time of King Josiah's Purge. That they weren't completely gone underground. Now, yes, it's been incredibly diluted by the the Catholic Church, but boy, they had, they have strong echoes of that. And I'm not talking about you know, there's the Mariology, where uh, people worship Mary as an intercessory, that the people pray to her to talk to the Son. And that's not that I'm talking about is, um, is what we do or what the Israelites did. They, the intercessory person here is Jesus Christ, and he intercedes on our behalf to our heavenly parents and to heavenly father. So somehow the mother is so tied to the son and that's why the feminine divine is so incredibly important. The veil is thinning and the, the, the heavens are opening to what that means for us as women. Um, study that. Study the vision of Nephi and Lehi with an eye trying to understand, remember what they were leaving behind, what was it that they were trying to restore to us, and that Nephi built a temple after the like of Solomon, after the first temple, before things were changed, before things were ripped out and burned and cut down with an ax and all of that horrible stuff. Listen, I'm gonna close. I'm gonna talk more next week about all of this. There's so much to discuss. Um, So many strong echoes in the Book of Mormon and in the Bible, in the Apocryphal writings, in archeology, span the things that are coming out about Heavenly Mother, what that means for us as women in the gospel, about what that means for us as the feminine divine, about the divine part of our feminine and about the the divine... um, about the feminine part of the divine. They, they just they just go hand in hand. Thank you so much for joining me. I read my book, get a, get a copy of my uh, book that I have out now. We are Adam, the partnership of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and what it means for you. I'm on Facebook. I have an author page. I also have a private group you can join called the Exploring the Divine Feminine. It's a private group you do have to join. I have an Instagram. I write on medium.com. I write about a lot of these things. I, I do need to get some more um, posted, but uh, you can check me out on my website, Ramonasidaway.com. And please send me fan, just send me emails, send me love so that I know that I'm not talking into an empty space. I would absolutely love. Where are you from? Um, where are you listening from? And, um, What I'd like to do is just offer a reward um, for the person that is listening from the longest, the furthest um, place. Uh, Let me know and I will send you a free copy of my book, We Are Adam. I will sign it. and. I'll let you know if you're the winner and then, you know, contact me and i get your address and free of charge, free shipping, I will send you a free copy, the person the furthest away geographically. Thank you so much for joining and have a divine day.